The Secrets of Star Trek is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, episode 114. Captain DeBridge, Spock here. Make it so. Surrender is not an option. Attention crew of the Enterprise, this is James Kirk. We are all explorers, driven to know what's over the horizon, what's beyond our own shores. We would have helped you get home if you had asked. That's who Starfleet is. Hi, I'm Dom Bettinelli, and you're listening to The Secrets of Star Trek, where we discuss the hidden layers and deeper meanings found in all the Star Trek TV series, movies, and more. And today we're discussing the Next Generation episode called Where No One Has Gone Before. And joining me today on the panel are Father Corey Stika. Hi, Father Corey. How's it going, Dom? Very well, thank you. And Jimmy Aiken. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Folks, remember to like The Secrets of Star Trek on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash starquestmedia. Uh, retweet it on Twitter, where we're at SQPN, and l- please leave your comments and engage with us on social media. We love to have uh, conversations and connect with you there. And before we get started today, I wanted to, I mentioned this to you all last time, I wanted to follow up on something that I meant to mention in our discussion of Star Trek V, but that slipped my mind. One of the things that people have wondered about is the degree to which, like, Cybok Spock's brother is canon. And Roddenberry either apparently said he thought certain elements of this movie or even the whole thing were apocryphal, but I don't buy that because, you know, it's the he accepted his money for it. It's got the Star <laughs> Trek label. And also it's it, even if it's not a well-executed movie, it is not any different intrinsically than other things we've seen in Star Trek, where they go meet God and God is not everything he's cracked up to be. I mean, that's a recurring trope in in early Star Trek. But about Cybok specifically, when I first saw the movie, it's like, okay, we're told Cybok's mother was a Vulcan princess because, of course, she was. Right. And then I started thinking about it when I rewatched it this time. I thought, well, wait a minute, no. Actually, that fits because we know from Amok Time that Spock's family is very high up in the social order. When Kirk and McCoy and Spock beam down for the wedding with T'Pring, Kirk is amazed that they have T'Pau officiating at the wedding. So, so apparently Spock's family is really not from the hoi polloi. They are really high up in the social rankings. So it would make sense also, because as we know from a muck time, that childhood marriages are arranged on Vulcan. If Sarek came from a very high up family, it would make sense for him to have a childhood marriage to a Vulcan princess. And thus that would explain Cybok's mother. And then in Star Trek V, we're told that after that person died, he married Amanda and had Spock. And we know from Journey to Babel, when Sarek is asked why, now it would make no sense for uh, Spock to have a childhood marriage to Amanda. And he was asked, why did you marry an Earth woman? And he said, well, it seemed logical at the time. 
And I've always assumed he was in he he went into Pon Far and she was one of the few women available. Like as an ambassador, maybe he was on Earth, there were no Vulcan women there who were suitable or available. And so actually the narrative we're given about Cybok being from a prior marriage and having a high-ranking princess mother, that actually fits well with what we know from Journey to Babel and Amok Time. So I'm, 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 not, uh, I'm not as opposed to the princess idea as I initially was. Okay. And then Michael came along. <laughs> and then Michael, yeah. <laughs> well, and there might be some other foster siblings and half-siblings out there, too. Uh, uh yes I, I fit that's okay that's okay I'll I'll buy that I'll I'll put my my headcanon stamp on that uh all right so we're talking about this one which is uh, where no one has gone before this is the next generation first season episode uh, the sixth episode of the first season and some interesting aspects of the b- behind the scenes so it's co-written by Diane Duane which we are told it's the original story premise was loosely based on. What I consider a far superior novel called *The Wounded Sky*. This is one of the best Star Trek novels that they they ever had out mm. there. Uh, from back, this is back in the eighties. Uh, you know, this before this TNG was out. Uh, it involved the original series, Enterprise and crew. Uh, but it was an excellent book. I still remember it all these years later, thirty some odd years later. Uh, really well done. Uh, Diane Duane is a is a fantastic author. She's written several great series of books. In fact. Just as a note, she wrote a series of books starting in the 80s that went into recent times where uh, involved young wizards in the in the modern world, et cetera, et cetera. She did that about 30 years before J.K. Rowling did or 20 some odd years before she did. <laughs> uh, anyway, so uh, but almost nothing of Diane Duane's and the, her co-author Michael Reeves's original script survived the re, uh, rewrite, uh, apparently because of inter-office politics at the Star Trek office, production office. Every writer associated with a particular fired staffer was kind of cut out of things. So the story stayed, but it was rewritten without consultation of Diane Duane. So you can't blame her for any of the deficiencies of this story. But I think the the good parts that remain really are good. So apparently in the original teleplay that, that she wrote, Kaczynski was responsible for both the warp effect and the and the accident. So... It wasn't that the, the traveler wasn't responsible, it was the Kaczynski himself. He also had a son who felt his father was more interested in his work than in him, and then the hallucinations were much more bizarre than in the final episode. Uh, we had Jack Crusher appearing to Picard and Beverly, the Enterprise appeared inside a cosmological egg, uh, when the starship escaped it exploded and caused the birth of a new universe, and as a sort of biblical pun, the Enterprise spends six days missing. And then, so when they get back from causing the birth of a new universe, Picard orders the next day to be a day of rest, so to speak. So, oh. uh, some some uh, interesting puns. See, see what they did there? <laughs> so, that was what the original story was going to look like, uh, but they, they changed it to what we have now. So, another little bit of note, uh, Eric Menyek, who plays the Traveler in this and in what some people call the, the Traveler arc, he's in three episodes. This is the first mm. of his three. He was actually a finalist for the role of Data that eventually, of course, went to Brent Spiner and uh, was given this role as a sort of consolation prize. So it's kind of interesting to think of him as a Data, what he would have been like, but uh, it would have been a very different next generation. Would have been taller. <laughs> That's yeah. for sure. This guy, he was not uh, a short In fact, he reminds me a lot of uh, the actor who plays Saru. Um, Doug Jones is a similar sort of guy. 
So uh, a couple things. Worf's Targ that we end up seeing was played by a Russian wild boar named Emmy Lou. And producer Robert Justman recalled, That pig smelled horrid, a sweet, sour, extremely pungent odor. I showered and showered it, and it took me a week to get rid of the smell. (laughs) It's just great. That set must have stunk forever. Uh, And then uh, while shooting the scene in the episode where Riker tells Picard it wasn't him, it never was, it was assistant, Jonathan Frakes apparently had some difficulty getting the line out and eventually couldn't say it without breaking into a laugh, and the entire cast and crew spent the rest of the shooting laughing over it. So I thought that was a couple of funny bits there. But uh, let's get into the story itself. Uh, We start with the Enterprise uh, rendezvousing with the USS Fearless to pick up Starfleet propulsion expert Kaczynski who's going to do some warp drive tuning, because, you know, that's what you do. Riker's concerned that the specs that Kaczynski had sent ahead are gibberish. Oh, no, 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 no. Kaczynski's warp field studies were required reading at the Academy. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right, right, right. <laughs> required reading at the Academy, Mr. Spock. No, no in this case, the, the specs that he sent over are gibberish. Uh, that's what he says. Oh, Picard's attitude in this Again, we're early on in the first season. He's still overly combative and aggressive here. When like when Riker c- questions Kaczynski, he, he gets, uh, well, then how do you explain Starfleet's report that these tests on the Ajax and the Fearless were b- resulted in increase in propulsion? Like, he's very much more defensive or, or combative here than he will ever be. Testy. Testy, I think. Yeah, that's a good word for it. Uh, so I, I just thought it was interesting to see the, how Picard will eventually change, mellow out over the over the ages. So they, they pick him up, and Riker is sent to go meet him in the transporter room, takes Troy along as a sort of lie detector. I, I think that's interesting that uh, he's very suspicious of this guy right off the bat, and so he wants Troy to do her, I, I feel he's telling the truth, as he believes it thing. Yeah, it's like, she can't detect lies anyway, so. <laughs> right. <laughs> Lying is not an emotion, so it, right. except when they want it to be. Yes. Uh, the, so uh, in the transporter room, they uh, he introduces Lieutenant Commander Argyle as one of the chief engineers. This is that first season problem where we don't have a chief engineer. It changes week to week depending on the availability of the actors that they've got lined up. Yeah, and later during the episode, though, they consistently refer to Argyle as the chief engineer. Yeah. And uh, I actually, I like the Argyle actor. I think he does a decent job in the part. I could have seen him going on to become a regular engineer, although that would mean that we would have had another problem because one of the issues with the first season of Next Gen is the cast is too big. Yeah. Right. Losing Denise Crosby as Tasha Yar was a good move because it allowed Worf to move into the position of security chief where he belonged. Right. And transferring Geordi from helm to engineering, or from navigation to engineering, also allowed him to shine. And so actually losing Tasha and not having a regular engineer in the first season set up the classic dynamic of the cast that really was needed, because otherwise the parts were too thin and too spread around. I wonder, though, if they were trying with this Argyle to make another Scotty. Oh, clearly, as they were with Sarah McDougall. Uh, the other early engineer that we see in the first season. It's like, it got to be Scottish. And even though the actor is just, is not playing Argyle with a Scottish accent, he nevertheless says, I, I have questions. A-Y-E-I. It's like, yep. yeah. 
Okay. <laughs> exactly. So, uh, Kaczynski, meanwhile, is arrogant and officious and self-important, which, you know, that's that's going to be his <laughs> primary characteristic. Stereotypical arrogant engineer. I mean, like, he knows everything and you're too stupid to know anything, so I'm not even <laughs> going to bother to explain it to you. Uh, well, okay, stereotypical. I mean, I grew up in a family of engineers, and I don't know how widely perceived that stereotype no, I, is, but TV stereotype. TV stereotype. Sorry. Yeah, that's clear yeah. about that. I was a computer administrator. It's very similar to engineer type personality, so I understand completely. Mm-hmm. But right. it is very much this the stereotypical. I'm the greatest engineer that has ever existed, and you all are too stupid to know right. what I know. Yeah, it's one of the the three or four tropes of engineers and scientists that we get in science fiction generally in this. And, and Riker totally didn't need Troy to pick up on that. <laughs> yes. The real reason she's in this scene is not to tell us about Kaczynski, because the viewer can see how arrogant he is. The real reason she's in this scene is to tell us she cannot read the Traveler at all in order to build mystery around the Traveler. Yes. That's her function in this scene. Yeah, she says, I'm concerned, but I can point to no reason yet. Perhaps because you can sense no presence from him? That should be concerning. Exactly. <laughs> Uh, so he says that he's from Tau Alpha Ceti. His name is unpronounceable to humans, and so Tau Alpha C. Sorry, Tau Alpha C, which is different from Tau Alpha Ceti, which is where Tau Ceti, Tau Ceti, which was where uh, Khan was. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> Tau Alpha. C. It's all Greek to me. Army. It's all Greek. Yes, that was Ceti Alpha Five. Ceti Alpha. Oh my gosh, all these alphas and Cetis and Cs. Oh my. Yeah, his name is unpronounceable, so call him the Traveler. Kaczynski in the in. in Engineering, arrogantly, of course, pre- preempts Argyle's questions about why his equations seem like gibberish. Uh, he expects him to be too dumb to understand them. I like how he says, my assistant will now enter them into your computer super fast, way faster than any human, including myself, could enter them. And you look at the traveler's hands, and he's got these nightcrawler hands, <laughs> right. where he's got like, two massive hulking fingers and massive hulking thumbs and it's like there's no way he's entering them faster than a human being i'm sorry that doesn't happen that's not gonna work (laughs) right maybe if he had 10 fingers on each hand instead of three (laughs) (laughs) so meanwhile the traveler takes an interest in wesley who's apparently in uh, engineering uh, working on a school project it'd be nice to be able to do school projects in a the the flagship's engineering kaczynski says uh, i'm not a teacher though i wish to become one i have neither the inclination nor the time to teach you about this. And Riker tells him you have no choice. So, you know, get get going. So while he's explaining, the Traveler gets Wesley to show him how he would make the warp drive more efficient. He senses this. Yeah, I have a couple of notes at this point. One of them is, at this stage at least, they are doing a decent job of avoiding the technobabble. Mm-hmm. Yep. Because the tendency in a show that's tech-centered like this would be to overload it, and they actually go in the other direction. So Kaczynski does not simply start spouting technobabble. And also, I have a note, I'm not sensing a B-plot. Yeah. Because normally there's an A-plot and a B-plot in these episodes, where the main action is focused on one thing, but we have something else happening in the background. There is that does not happen in this episode. This is all a plot. And I think it's I think it's a testimony to I mean and we can debate that in a second, but yeah. by my read, this is all a plot. It's everything is connected to the traveler and Kaczynski, you know, whether you're talking Wesley or whatever, right. it's everything is being driven by them. 
And that, to my mind, is a testament to this not being the worst of first season next gen because it's able to sustain interest without having to resort to, oh, someone else is having something completely different going on in their lives in the background. Right. Right. Yeah, and, and fair enough. I mean, I was I was gonna disagree only because there was the you know the, the Wesley is- that Roddenberry was trying so hard to get people to actually like Wesley and see him as a character <laughs> that should be part of this show, and of course you know it falls flat because Wesley is suddenly super mega ultra warp genius and right. But that's that's key to the plot here, I guess. It yeah. is though. No, I agree with you yeah. on that though. That that is that isn't a B plot. That's kind of half the point of this whole episode is yeah. Wesley is this great super genius that everybody should like and no one ends up actually liking. <laughs> in terms of Will Wheaton's performance, though, I didn't find him as annoying in this as I found. I mean, your mileage no, may it, vary, but I no, thought no. he came across fairly reasonably. I mean, no, given given the premise that he's the Mozart of warp engines. Yeah. Given that. Will Wheaton does a good job playing him in this episode. Oh no, it's it's not a it's not a complaint against Will Wheaton. You know and that that's the the funny part is, is you know Will Wheaton in real life is, is a fairly touchy individual, but he is a good actor. Yeah, it's he, the character. He, the best actor can can't make a turd of a character smell any worse or smell <laughs> all, any better. <laughs> also, they they didn't give Will any tantrums. The writers didn't. No. They didn't yeah. give him any tantrums in this episode, which is when he becomes the most unlikable. Yeah. He does stand up for himself at one point when they keep ridiculously referring to him as the boy in his own presence. And he yep. does at one point stand up and say, my name is Wesley. Right. But he doesn't throw a tantrum about it. And he comes across in this episode as yeah. more sympathetic and less annoying to me. Yeah. I, I, my, I, I think he's less annoying. Yeah. It's, it's still first season next gen, so he's still <laughs> annoying. Just he, it, it's like on a scale of annoying to very annoying. He's just a, annoying. <laughs> uh, so I would say Wes, Wesley, the character, is less annoying. Will Wheaton is as as, as his acting here is still kind of raw, still not not as polished as he will become in later seasons, as we will see. Yeah. You know, he's like, he's, I found some of the. Uh, emoting a little mm, rough here in some of these scenes. It, 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 his acting is still, you know, and, a bit and to give developing. give the doer yeah. give the doer it is. Most of the characters in the first season of TNG are pretty rough. Like again, yeah. we just talked about Picard. You know how he's very yeah. very touchy. You know things like that. So right, yeah, it, but yes, yeah, his acting will get better as we go on. But yeah, this was still early. This is like when in uh, yes, uh, naked. Tomorrow's yesterday's whatever the one where uh, the where they all naked get infected now. by the naked now uh the whole like his acting in that one was really <laughs> bad so he's getting better but uh, as we go along anyway as as this is going on they're they're starting off with their experiment and uh Kaczynski is doing his tuning quote unquote which is uh like a lot of those apps you download to tune your computer it doesn't do anything so <laughs> the traveler <laughs> gets distracted by Wesley and something goes wrong. And as he tries to recover, he starts interfacing I, I, with I, the console I, and starts disappearing, basically. Yeah, I didn't get that he was distracted by Wesley. I just got the impression the Traveler screwed up somehow. I, well, he was looking at Wesley when things started going wrong, I think. But then yeah, that's kinda, on the... Wesley had not, like, been, you know, sticking his fingers in his ears and wha- his thumbs in his ears and waggling right. his fingers. Wesley didn't do anything wrong. This is on the Traveler. 
No, no, I don't think Wesley did anything wrong. It's just that uh, the traveler turns to look at Wesley and smile at him. And then Kaczynski goes, what are you doing? Like, pay attention to what you're doing. And that and something was and he still. So, yes, yeah. the traveler screwed up. So it's, it's not Wesley's fault, but uh, the yeah. traveler screwed up. Uh, and the ship ends up accelerating past warp 10, out of control. Which and- is impossible, given what they've set up, that you can only approach warp 10 asymptotically well, because it's an infinite speed, which was a stupid idea. Yep. <laughs> but they had it, and if you're going to have it, you should stick to it in your writing. Right. Well, and now now that they've reached warp 10, now they're all going to turn into uh, evolved Nils- salamanders. Breed <laughs> with each other. Whatever they were. <laughs> <laughs> well, in any case, they go way past it and end up in another galaxy. Uh, and, oh, and in uh, a real one, uh, yes, M thirty yes. three is is uh, is a real galaxy in Triangulum, and it is as far away as they say in the show. Yep. It's like two point seven million light years away, which means when Jordy says um, we can be home in three hundred years, that means they can go nine thousand light years per year. To get back. Voyager would be and, glad to know that. Voyager <laughs> would be home in eight years. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I think Jordy miscalculated. <laughs> so uh, Kaczynski's all excited. Oh, I made a wonderful mistake. Uh, but meanwhile, the traveler isn't feeling well. And uh, Wesley intuits here that Kaczynski doesn't understand what's really going on. That uh, And he says something about space and time and thought are not separate. And, and the traveler's like, never say that again. <laughs> well, you know, th- this is what this is one of my complaints though about episodes like this, where suddenly someone can look at a formula and immediately know what the formula is saying, right? You know, the the type of for- math formula necessary to do things like warp drive would not be something where you could just look at and go, "Oh, I can, I know exactly what that's doing." You'd have yeah. to actually, you know, study it a little bit before you could come up with that conclusion. Not to say that he couldn't have figured it out, but just saying, "Oh, I was watching you do the formula, and that's what it says," right? Right. Right, yeah, it's it stretches belief a little bit, uh, but you know, conflating for time, I guess. I I I kind of thought they did a reasonable job with this because the uh, when the traveler and Wesley are interacting, the, he's got like this display that the two of them are looking at, and it's showing you know the mm-hmm. '80s computer graphics warp field around the Enterprise, and like if we adjust it this way, then we see that we the viewers see the field change, mm-hmm. right. And the traveler talking to Wesley is like, "Will his will, will his thing do what he says it will?" And Wesley's like, "Well, it's got a chance, but it would work better if you do this." And Wesley manipulates something that we don't see, and right. the warp field changes. And so, rather than showing us equations, they're just showing us the interaction between right. the two characters, and to to make it clear to us, to give us some visual hook. They're showing us the manipulation of the warp field around the ship, but not the equations that are driving it. And I thought well, that was a reasonable compromise, no. actually, of giving the reader an insight into what they're talking about mm-hmm. without showing us a bunch of nonsensical gibberish. Well, that that wasn't the part I was talking about, though. I was talking mm-hmm. about the conversation between Wesley and the Traveler after they had done the warp 10 mega jump. Okay. And he goes, well, the formula says that space and time and thought are all the same, right? And I'm sorry, you wouldn't have been able to figure that out from a simple formula because something like that is not going to be a simple formula. And that's that's the part I had the complaint. I'm not I like I, I agree with you the way they show that before they did the, the mega jump showing the the time, the, the, the warp bubble changing and everything. I, that was very effective for showing what they're doing. So yeah, and, I, and I will on that I will concede I didn't 
think that Wesley was getting it out of the formula, but um, although I could be mistaken, but I thought his space and time and thought are not the separate things they appear line, like really came out of nowhere. Yeah. Well, that's the, that's the point that because that, he says, well, that's what the formula says, right? Yeah. And, and, and why? Trailer... Like, why is this? Why is this a dangerous thing? Space and time and thought are not separate. Like, uh, uh, they're uh, not philosophers. Buddhism, who... dude. I mean, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it just seemed like a little, you know, reaching a little bit there. Well, in any case, Picard now consults, gathers the bridge crew around and consults them. What should we do? And so uh, should we trust Kaczynski to get us home? Should we try to do it without him? Uh, Or what Data says is, let's stay and explore because I'm essentially immortal and you all will die out here. And uh, Picard would have worked out better for Data if if they had. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. exactly. Data would have outlived them instead of... uh, Spoilers. When Wesley, uh, <laughs> when uh, Wesley tries to again, as you said, tr- tries to tell Riker about the traveler, Riker's a jerk and dismisses him. Not now, Wesley. He says, you know, because they're all jerks to poor Wesley. But during the next trial of the engines, he notices what's happening to the traveler himself, and this time the ride is much rougher, and so uh, they end and up in this going farther. Yes. Uh, where is this place w- in Weirdo Land? Yeah. Yeah, Picard says, where is this place? And Data says, where none have gone before. Oh, that sounds Ooh. familiar. <laughs> <laughs> so a couple of thoughts on this. The, the, the effects they give us during the second jump, and it was even there in the first jump, but in the second jump, they are like flying straight at the screen. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, we see astronomical objects like nebulas and stuff just whoosh hit the screen. And... Okay, it makes for a dramatic special effect. My thought was, you should be cream toast at this point. <laughs> yes. Because the deflectors, are, which are meant to steer particles of matter out of your way as you fly through space, are not designed to keep up with this level of speed. <laughs> right. <laughs> so you should just be smacked by all kinds of little particles that would tear the ship apart and fly through stars. You know, yeah, right. at at this speed, they're flying through galaxies. I mean, it's not yeah. going to push a galaxy out of the way. Yeah, you're going <laughs> to hit a star at some point, and it's not going to push that out of the way. Also, when they finally get to Weirdo Land, and I like the Weirdo Land special effects. Mm-hmm. It communicates we are no longer in normal astronomical space. Yeah, except in his log entry, Picard says we're over a billion light years from home. Well, guess what, sunshine. A billion light years is well within the visible universe. I mean, <laughs> right. you'd have to get like 46 billion years or something away. And and you're not if you're talking on that level. Picard also talking to his mom later says we view this as the outer rim of the universe. Well, not unless the universe is only a couple of billion light years across, which it's not. <laughs> right, right. Uh, yeah, the the to- universe is how many billions of years old? Yeah, well, well, and it's not just that, but because space is it, 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 because of uh, space, the expansion of space is accelerating. Even though you would think the universe would be twenty six billion light years across if it's thirteen billion years old, it's actually the visible universe is way farther than that because space expands faster. Okay, and so it's like I forget if it's the radius or the diameter, but it's like forty six billion light years. To make the pedantic point that has to be made, you know, 46, 46 billion light years is more than a billion light years away. So. I know, <laughs> but still. <laughs> I know what you meant. 
<laughs> yeah, we, I've I've made over a more, more than a hundred dollars. You mean like a hundred million dollars? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, meanwhile, on the bridge, Worf and Yar see that pet targ, the Russian wild boar, dressed up with a horn, because all alien creatures are basically Earth creatures with a horn, as we've learned in Star Trek. Yep. Well, uh, it's and like all aliens are humans with a funny forehead. So it's exactly. an it's a it's an animal with a funny forehead. Yep, an animal funny forehead. Uh, it's a Worf's pet targ, which we've seen targs before which do not look like this but they've decided to go with the boar thing uh meanwhile yar she says is that like a, a klingon cat and then she sees a cat and then she has a memory or displaced hallucination, uh, hallucination of being back home on the colony where she grew up with the which it seems incredibly callous now to just throw this into a kid sci-fi show essentially mm-hmm. but rape gangs chasing her i'm like wow that's that's dark and we even see the guys. I mean, they're in silhouette, yeah, because it's dark outside. But we even yep. see the and hear the guys in the rape gang, and it's like, yeah, this yeah. is really dark. Yeah, that that's it's it from twenty twenty. That just seems like weird a, a thing to throw into the show like that. Um, I, I, as I remember it, yeah, yeah, and I, I mean, obviously, they want to show that she comes from a very very brutal colony. That not everything is so perfect and beautiful right. in, in federation land right right fortunately to lighten things up we have another guy playing eine kleine nacht music with a <laughs> uh with a group of folks <laughs> yes an 18th century trio and uh, people are having delusions uh picard on the turbo left the turbo left stops and he almost walks out into space uh, that's that- the and that is really good and that is the yes. most iconic shot that everybody remembers from this episode is him yeah. stepping out starting to step out in empty space from the turbo lift and then catching himself. Also, that is one of the two things that survived from the author's original draft. Right. Mm. One of them was this was the bit with him having tea with his dead mother, and uh, the other was him stepping out of the elevator in, into empty space. Right. Yeah, they have, uh, yeah, he has this moment after this where he encounters his uh, grandmother, I think, or mother, mother grandmother. Mother. Yeah, who, who offers him tea and has a discussion about being at the end of the edge of the universe and how can you mm. be here? Apparently, she's, she's actually died. Then he calls okay. Red Alert. Well, okay, but before then, uh, we also have a scene with a ballerina dancing around in a cargo bay. Oh, yeah. Yep. And the the piece of music she's dancing to, unlike the actual Mozart piece, Eine Kleine Nacht music, this is one they wrote for the show. Oh. And it's called Waltz of the Chocolate Donut. <laughs> <laughs> but you wouldn't know that. You would think this is a real, you know, piece yeah. of classical music you could do ballet to. Also, in the scene with Mom, you know, Picard is surprisingly open to the idea of this is real that mom is in the afterlife and is nevertheless communicating with me. And he says, how can you be with me? And she says, I've always been with you. You've sensed that. And he acknowledges that he has sensed her presence since her death. Yeah. And then his question is not, I don't believe you. It's why now? Yeah. And she indicates it's because he's here. And so Mm. Picard is interestingly open to the idea of the afterlife, which he actually confesses he believes in in a later episode. Right. So that's interesting. And then when Riker comes up and distracts him and mom is suddenly gone, there's this moment where Patrick Stewart is portrays Picard being genuinely hurt yep. at the loss of his mom. And as someone who 
you know, when I lost my wife, I would have dreams about being with Renee again. And then I'd wake up and it would be like, oh, man. Mm -hmm. And I know that feeling that Picard has at that moment. And Mm -hmm. I really appreciated them having that there. Right. Patrick Stewart being awesome again. Well, that's it, and it's it's mm-hmm. nice though that this episode does more to humanize Picard, and this is one of those scenes where yeah. we see that where it's start that that process is is starting where they're kind of pulling back from the really harsh captain, yeah. right? But then, as you say, Dom, Picard does call general quarters and red alert, telling everyone the ship is in a dire emergency. And at that point, he says, "We need to be controlling our thoughts. Do not think of an elephant." <laughs> and it, yeah. <laughs> And at that moment, the Enterprise explodes, ending the series forever. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, I, I was going to say, what did you do, Ray? <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I thought of the most innocent thing I could remember from my childhood. <laughs> it's the State Puff Marshmallow Man. <laughs> yeah. I, was, I actually wrote in my notes, don't think of pink elephants. <laughs> yeah. It's just the stupidest thing. And then they say, well, why did you call Red Alert? Is well, I need to get everyone's attention, and that seemed like a good way. Okay, the captain of a cruise ship has ways of getting people's attention <laughs> without calling Red Alert and telling everyone there is an imminent danger that's really important. Yes. You're just, what is it going to be? Is it Klingons? Is it the devil? I mean, what is, all of these things are going to descend on the Enterprise. Is it the warp engines are going to blow? All of those things are going to happen all at once yeah. if you if you tell people we're at red alert in reality fantasy land. Yeah. <laughs> yes. So, yeah. yeah. What we think becomes a reality, and all of a sudden, Barkley's down in engineering going, oh, good. You know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can live my holodeck fantasies in real life. Yeah. <laughs> so the uh, the traveler is ill, as we know, and Crusher is treating him in sick bay, and uh, Kaczynski admits he's dying. Finally, Yes, that he wasn't him who did anything. Yes, Crusher says the traveler's dying. Uh, she can't get a reading on him, of course, because he has no presence. He's some advanced alien. Wesley shows up, and again, Picard is dismissive of poor Wes. Uh, but Riker says, no, Wes seems to have formed some sort of attachment. Um, and uh, and despite, he, yeah. he acknowledges that Wesley tried to warn him twice. Mm-hmm. And so Riker, you know, owns up to the situation. Yep. Uh, and then uh, dis- Picard wants to talk to the Traveler, so despite not being able to treat him with her instruments or get any readings, Crusher in- injects him with a stimulant to wake him up. <laughs> well, she gets <laughs> readings, she just doesn't know how to how to interpret them. <laughs> right, 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 right. So she, but she, you know, random stimulant. Uh, I just thought it was, it's funny. I mean, they have P- to do it, of course, but... Picard's reasoning is, well, they could just have him wake up on his own, but yeah. Picard's mm-hmm. reasoning for drama, we must wake him, but Captain, wake him! You know, <laughs> yeah. you got to have, have that scene at least you know a couple of times a season. Yeah, right. But his rationale here for why is actually interesting because he says we can't stay here much longer, or we're going to lose the ability to distinguish thought from reality. Mm-hmm. And actually, you should have blown up already. Yeah, right. So actually, this is this is a reasonable point. You know, yes. we only have so long until someone thinks the words warp core breach (laughs) and we need to get out of here now yes uh and so the traveler begins to explain who he is he doesn't have a destination he travels out of curiosity he comes from a people that control space and time 
He has a little box that's bigger on the inside. Oh, wait a minute. That's a different oh, yeah, I was going to say, yeah, he's the doctor. <laughs> he, he'll even end up with Wesley as a companion. <laughs> which I don't like. I hate that episode, but I'm not. I'm trying not to hold it against this one, yes, knowing yes. where they're going to go oh, with yeah. Traveler. Yes. Yep. But, uh, but the good thing is Wesley ends up dying when he has to uh, come up with some calculations to stop yeah. the Borg uh, now taking over a freighter headed toward Earth. I'm <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> uh, mixing the streams. So when the uh, traveler says he doesn't have a destination and travels out of curiosity, Picard says, that's not an answer. And I'm thinking, it's like, you're an explorer, dude. <laughs> that's right. That's what the Enterprise does. <laughs> <laughs> oh, also, speaking of implausible lines of dialogue in this scene, yep. all of a sudden, Kaczynski is now the implausible, unlikable skeptic. Yes. Where now when the traveler is saying, well, the magic works this way, that's impossible. And it's like, uh, you know, we're kind of here. <laughs> yeah. yeah this point was made earlier that we the fact we're here kind of justifies some of the hoodoo <laughs> also yep. your credibility shot because be quiet and sit down <laughs> yeah. yeah so the uh, yeah the travel says thought is the basis of reality and he can act like a lens that focuses thought the danger to them is the chaos from whatever their imagination creates and then he asks to talk to picard alone and you think oh here's the really important bit and and of all the things that are going on, what's most important to him right now is it's imperative that Picard encourage Wesley as a prodigy of time and space. Because he is the Mozart of the warp drive and warp vessels. <laughs> yes, mm -hmm. right. And it's given what they've set up as the traveler's motive, you know, that makes sense. It's because he's looking to find people like Wesley that is the reason he's exploring our culture now. Right. Right, he's looking for prodigies of this sort. Just felt a little uh, pushed for me, you know, like where mm -hmm. I commented at the beginning, you know, this is uh, Roddenberry say, you really should like Wesley, and here's why. And that's what this scene felt like to me. Yes. So as they begin the attempt to return, to, to go back, um, Troy advises the, the captain that uh, as you oh. begin the attempt, there will be stress among the crew. And it's only natural the crew's concentrated, like, it's just he's stating like obvious platitudes about about the crew. <laughs> yeah. So the captain encourages everyone to concentrate their thoughts on the traveler. Think good thoughts. Everybody must clap their hands so that Tinkerbell doesn't die. <laughs> yeah. Right. They, <laughs> Give your well wishes. Them, yeah. Then send your thoughts and prayers to the traveler. Uh, so uh, as they're as it's going on, Troy gets practically giddy with the good feelings oh, of the crew. She's getting high on the good feelings from the crew. <laughs> <laughs> also, uh, Picard, as they're about to go back, like earlier, he called Red Alert just to get people's attention. Yes. You know, and, and even and when chimes would do. Yes. You know? yep. But and now that they're going to head back, he calls battle stations. <laughs> right. So he wants people manning the phasers and the photon torpedoes on the way back <laughs> for some reason. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah. If it doesn't go well, they might end up, you know, in the middle of the uh, Klingons or something. But uh, yeah. <laughs> but to complete his minor redemption arc as an annoying jerk, Kaczynski is invited by the Traveler to sit at the main computer console with him and help during the return trip. And so we've gone from Kaczynski is arrogant person who thinks it's all about him to yes. Kaczynski realizes it's not all about him, but is defensive and resisting the Traveler's ideas, to he's now given a role assisting the Traveler 
and has kind of been put in his place and being treated magnanimously now, even though he was a total jerk. And so we have our minor redemption, minor clumsy redemption arc <laughs> completed for Kaczynski. And uh, as they uh, during the return journey, as the traveler, you know, does his mo- uh, 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 hoodoo mojo thing, uh, he completely fades out as the Enterprise jumps to warp, and they get home exactly where they left uh, uh, when they started. So perfect return journey. And this was a what I call a dramatic talking over consoles ending. Yes, well, yes, because we're that, not done yet. Because uh, Picard summons Wesley to the bridge, and we have this whole thing with him and Riker, where he kind of talks about Wesley uh, as if he's not there, and he decides to make him a an acting ensign uh, on the bridge, which I think is kind of you know excessive. I mean, you just. Tell him that he could hang out for a while, learn some things. You know, you know, yeah. Instead of putting him at a console and giving him a rank. Uh, okay. Um, on the say-so of this alien. But in anyways, uh, this is when S- uh, Wesley becomes an acting ensign, and he's going to start to sit at a console uh, at the helm and drive the Federation flagship as a boy. Yep. Uh, so, And that's where we end things up. So any, um, uh, any final notes? Anything left to say, Father, Father? Corey? Nope, nothing here. Jimmy? I just thought Kaczynski was... I mean, there's rough edges on the writing all the way through this episode, but I really thought Kaczynski was way too off-putting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They could have done something much more interesting with his character and still have him follow the arc they wanted him to follow. He just didn't have to be written that badly. Yes. Uh, Played by a great character actor. He was seen in a bunch of other things before. Um, uh, Stanley Kamel, who has since passed on. Uh, May he rest Mm -hmm. in peace. But uh, yeah, he... (laughs) He he may do with with a bad a bad character. <laughs> All right, so uh, let's wrap things up there then, and we'll take a moment to thank our patrons who make it possible for us to create the secrets of Star Trek, including Adam G, Jeremy N, Ben B, Brad W, and Mark W. Their generous donations at sqpn.com/give make it possible for us to continue the secrets of Star Trek and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. And we'd also like to thank Victor Lambs, who edits the show for us every week. So that's it from us. What do you think of where no one has gone before? Let us know by commenting on the show at sqpn.com slash trek or our Facebook page, facebook.com slash starquestmedia, or send an email to trek at sqpn.com. And we'll be back next time when we'll be discussing the Deep Space Nine episode, The Passenger. Until then, Father Corey Stika, thank you for joining me and sharing the secrets of Star Trek. Thank you, Dom. Uh, Jimmy Aiken, thank you as well. Thanks, and live long and prosper. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to the secrets of Star Trek on StarQuest. And remember, please don't interrupt me, Wesley. You're not involved in this decision, boy. (laughs) 